open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to move into a different phase. We're, we're not finished with worship, but we're finished with this discussion, which has gone on for more than a year with a few little side trips. But now we're, getting, we're heading towards what this was really all about. John chapter 4, we're going to go back over some things we studied when we first began to look at worship because it prepares us for what God has called us to do. I'm going to start reading through this, and there are just some highlights, some things as I was meditating on this again this morning. story we've been talking about, about the foundation of, of where God's led us to learning about true worship. But we're going to go back in the beginning. Now, therefore, therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed to go to Galilee. And he needed to go through Samaria. Samaria was a country that was in between uh, Judea, which was the, where Jerusalem is, the lower part of, of Israel, and the northern part, which was Galilee. And in between was this area called Samaria. It was made up of people that uh, were, were what we might call a half-breed. They were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Back when the Babylonians had taken the, uh, the southern nation of Judah into captivity for about 70 years, at the end of that 70 years, they allowed uh, them to repatriate, but they had left a small remnant of them in Jerusalem, in the southern area of Judea, and they brought some Babylonians over to settle that area, and as a result, they intermarried in violation of Jewish law, and then they produced children that were part Jew and part non-Jew, and to the Jews, that was, that was profane. To the Jews, that was tainted seed. To the Jews, they were, they were looked down upon, and to the Gentiles, they were looked down upon, so everybody didn't like them. And so as what's human nature is, when somebody doesn't like you, what do you do back? You don't like them. So this is a racial issue, really what it is. It's a re- not just so much even a religious issue, it's a racial issue. And it's important to understand that. I know we talked about that when we began this series a long time ago. But, but to, uh, to be reminded of that because it, it plays into what we want to begin to talk about today. So in order to go from... In order to go from one end to the other, he had to go through Samaria. And that's the, what we're, the, the land we're talking about right now. He departed and again to Galilee. He needed to go through Samaria, verse 4. And he came to a city of Samara, Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And of course, that's generations earlier. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman, verse 7, of Samaria came to draw water, because understand they didn't have plumbing, indoor plumbing, so every day or when, however often she would have to go up to this hill and to a well and draw water enough water for the rest of that day, or I don't know for how long, it doesn't tell us that, but she had a water pot that she would come and draw this well water out for a well, and most likely it was a pile of stones around a hole, and there would be some kind of container that would be lowered down and used to bring up to fill up her water pot, and she comes there, and Jesus is sitting there. Verse 7, And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, 
ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Stop right there. And we've talked about this before. But we're going to look at it from a little different point of view this morning. What we've discussed before is this is not just a nice story about a thirsty woman and Jesus. What this scene is, this is a woman who's coming out doing her everyday normal chores that she needs to do, and she's not going shopping, you know, for the latest lipstick. This is what she needs to live by. And so she's taking care of her, her necessities of life, and she, which is water is the most elemental necessity. And she's drawing that water, which undoubtedly she does every day. And so to her, this is like every other day. And she goes there, and what's different this day is there's a Jew sitting there. She knew he was a Jew by the way he was dressed. And she's a Jew and a male sitting there. And so she goes to go about her normal work, which would be not to talk to him. Understand this, that it was illegal for a a Jew and a Samaritan to talk to one another. It was also illegal for a male to speak to an unaccompanied female directly. They just couldn't do that. So what Jesus does here is violate two customs. But he did that all the time, didn't he? But he didn't do it just to violate them. He did it when they stood in the way of reaching somebody. And so what we've learned when we studied this before is this is not just a story of a thirsty Samaritan woman running, having a conversation with a Jewish rabbi which is often how so many people look at this. Because what we realize is it's Jesus sitting there, but John chapter 1 verse 14 says Jesus is God dwelling in flesh. Now because he's dwelling in flesh, and in spite of all the Renaissance paintings and all the other paintings, he didn't have a halo around his head, so you couldn't tell he was God unless the Spirit of God revealed to you who he was, or he revealed to you who he was. So this woman sees him, and as far as she's concerned, he's just a Jewish rabbi or a man sitting there, and and he looks at her. She doesn't realize the opportunity that she has. She doesn't know that she's walking into the presence of God. And we've looked at this to the point of view that this bears on what we go through when we come to church. That we so often come in here very casual attitude with not, re- not realizing, oh, if somebody asked you, yeah, oh yeah, we're coming to worship God this morning. But we don't even think about what those words mean. We don't think about what we're going to do because if we did, we would come in here with an attitude of reverence. And I'm talking to all of us, including me. We just get so used to it and comfortable and just going through our routine. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm getting ready, you know. And, and routines are good because if you're kind of foggy the way I was when I woke up this morning, you know, routines are good because you have to think about what you do next. On Sunday morning, this is what I do. Get up at 5.30, I go out and read my Bible, I have my cup of coffee, I go, you know, by this time I should be at this spot doing this thing, you know, and make sure, you know, Anita's up, make sure she's moving along with her progress. And these routines are helpful because that's, otherwise I probably wouldn't have been here this morning. And you're just the same, right? So routines are fine. We need them in our life. The problem is we've got to recognize that as with so many things in life that are valuable, there's a plus to them and there's a negative to them. There's a good thing that comes out of them, but there's also a risk. And the risk of it is we just kind of go through the routine and don't recognize 
the opportunity that we have. And that's what she was. She was going through a routine. We don't realize that we're having an opportunity to come together. I know we have that opportunity when we're by ourselves, but there's something about when we come together to meet with God. To meet with God. The God that has the answer to every problem you have or ever will have. The God that can drive away all fear and discouragement and depression. The God of infinite healing. The God who can fill you up to overflowing so that you're just overflowing with love and just it can literally completely change your life. Every time we come, he's waiting to do that for us. And that's what we're looking at this because this is Jesus beginning to reveal this opportunity to her because she has no idea. She's so conscious of herself and her flesh and her, the natural sensations of life and her routine of the feeling of the water pot and the thirst of the dryness of her mouth and the wetness of the water. That's all she's focused on because, you know, we're sitting in a nice air-conditioned room this morning, but she's out in a dry and arid land where it's hot and it's, we think it's been hot here. It's hot there and it's dry and she's parched when she gets up there and I'm sure all she's thinking about is getting a drink of that water and she doesn't realize that standing, sitting there is a drink of eternal water. And he has to reveal this to her. And so he speaks to her. And he says, woman, give me something to drink. That's powerful because what it tells us is this is where all of us have been. None of us, the Bible says, came to God on our own. None of us were so spiritually discerning, so spiritually sharp that we said, you know what, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. He had to show us that. I love the first verse of the, the, the wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace, because it says, it's grace that taught my heart to fear. In other words, it took grace to show me I was headed to hell. It took grace to show me I was living in rebellion, I was living in pride, I was living in selfishness, that I did not measure up or would never measure up to God's standard of righteousness because I thought I was pretty good. I wasn't proud, and I was proud of the fact I wasn't proud. <laughs> and such were some of you. I was good. I didn't cheat on my wife, I didn't cheat on my taxes, I was essentially honest. And compared to so many people, I was a good person. But God doesn't compare me to so many people. He compares me to Him. And He's perfect. And when I saw that, I knew I needed a Savior. But I, the point is, I couldn't see that on my own. I couldn't see that because I was so spiritually sharp. I remember trying to read my Bible. And I, you know, it was not that I was, was, was ignorant or, or couldn't read. I mean, I was... I'd been out of law school 10 years. I could read and understand the Internal Revenue Code back then. I'm not sure I could now. I mean, I could read it and understand it. It made sense to me. But the Bible made no sense to me. I mean, you know, why do people get excited about this? And then one night, Jesus came into my life. And suddenly, this book changed. Somebody got in there and changed all the words because it was alive. I, I could read it. I couldn't go to bed at night. I would every way else to go to bed. And I'd stay up to one. I'd make, to make myself go to bed instead of make myself read it. I had to make myself go to bed and close it because I had to go to, to go to work the next morning, but I couldn't wait to get home and open it and read it again. Why? It was a lie. Why? Because the author was now on the inside of me. Something had changed. But the point is this. Jesus had to come to me and get my attention. He had to get her attention. 
And listen to this. To do this, he crossed racial lines and he crossed lines of society's convention. A Jew spoke to a Samaritan and offered her something. A male, Jewish male, spoke to a Samaritan woman to give her something. And we're going to see by the time we're finished this, not just to give her something, but to give her village something that Jews would never enter into. Because God's love is like that. God's love knows no boundaries. It has no limitations. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that, that they be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in them, and that being rooted and grounded in His love for them, they might come to know the breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, the extent of the love of Christ so that they could be filled with all of it. God will go to any extent to reach somebody. And the proof of it is, He went to the extent of sending His own Son from the right hand of God to this earth to take on flesh, to hang on a cross for the sins of the most despicable person that's ever lived. So you can't sit here this morning and say, well, you know, you don't know who I am. No, I don't. But God does. You don't know what I've done. I don't, but God does. And the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, Christ died for your sins, knowing all of them ahead of time. So there's not something you're going to do, something you did that have taken him by surprise. He knew it all and still sent his son to die in your place to pay for them. So the Bible teaches us what the love of God is like. There's no limit on who he'll go to. There's no limit on how far he'll go. I've shared with you the story before that I heard from the great evangelist T.L. Osborne when he came to visit us at the Bible school we went to. and told a story about a time, actually this was told by his campaign manager to me. Uh, he was in what was then Calcutta at a crusade and the limousine picked him up to take him to the crusade and he was dressed in his white linen suit with white shoes and white socks and immaculately, you know, ready and his beard finally, you know, uh, groomed and everything like that. And he was picked up in a limousine, a fancy air-conditioned limousine to go to this crusade. He was the main speaker. And as he was turning a corner, he sees this, this man in the caste system. This was the lowest. This was of the, the untouchable with the mark on his forehead. He was lying in a gutter. And the gutter in Calcutta at that time was not like our gutters where you put the leaves and, you know, the rainwater rushes off. It was their sewer. He was lying there dying. And Osborne said, I can't describe it. He says, but something rose up in me. He said, it wasn't me. He said, I know what it was now. It was the compassion of God for that dying man. He said, I, all I could just to overtook me. He said, I told the driver to stop. He got out of the car, got down in the gutter and cradled this man that nobody would touch. Nope, they regarded him as trash. Cradled him in his arms while he died filth all over his white suit and I'm sure when he got to that crusade people looked at him and said my goodness look at how he's dressed look at how dirty he is but in God's eyes but the point is this that's what God's compassion and love is like there's no limit to where how high he'll go because sometimes we look at people that are lowly and think yeah I know God loves them but what about the down and uppers not the down and outers 
what about the, the what about the lawyers and the and the and the doctors and the people? I worked in large law firms with lawyers that were as as hurting and as lost as this man in the gutter. Except nobody would ever pay attention to them because they have the money and they have the suits and they have all that. But God cares enough for them too. He cares enough. The point is he cares enough to cross every line, every barrier that we can put up and Satan couldn't put up. He crossed the ultimate barrier. He came from heaven to take on flesh. And then he left this to go into hell and bear our sins down there to be judged. There's no limit to the love of God. And he spoke to this woman crossing the, the, the religious and the custom and the, and the racial lines. And he initiated with her. See, none of us are here because we initiated it with God. He initiated it with you. So if you wonder whether you're important to God, you're here because he chose you. He chose you. He chose you. You didn't fool him. I didn't fool him. It's not like, you know, we put on my best suit and God, I come to church and God says, you know, he looks pretty good. I think I'll save him. No, 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 no. He knows, he knows stuff inside of me I don't know. He knows every thought you've ever had, every attitude you've ever had, things you don't even know are in there. He knows, and yet he loves you enough to give his son's life in your place. Wow. Meditate on that a little bit when you get up every morning. It'll put pep in your step. He says, woman, if you, if, you know, give me a drink. He's initiating the conversation with her. And she can't understand because what he's about to do is he's about to go through a process of revealing to her who he is. Revealing to her who he is. And the woman said to him, because the disciples of verse 8 had gone away to the city to buy food. Verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. Let's stop there a second. He's saying to her, you don't know or understand what's going on here. You don't realize that as you come to this well, there's a gift that God has for you. If you knew the gift that God has for you. And I felt as I was meditating on this this morning that that's what the Spirit would say to us today. Oh yeah, we know Jesus and we come to church and we're filled with the Spirit and we all... But if you knew, if you really knew, if you really knew, See, this is where we get into routines and we have an intellectual knowledge of, yes, I know God loves me, yes, I know... But if you really knew it, if you really knew it, if you really knew the gift that God was offering you today is what he's saying to her. If we really knew every time we've come here together, if we really knew, if we could see it, because God can see what he has for you. That verse I quote almost every beginning of every service. I pray out, it's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has it entered the hearts of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. That means God has for us every time you come to Him, every time you open your eyes in the morning, every time you get on your knees or walk or sit in the car or pray, every time you come to Him, every time we come to church, God has things for you. 
gifts prepared for us. And then especially collectively together, God has gifts prepared for us that our eyes have not seen. If they saw them, we'd get excited about them. That our ears have not heard. If our ears heard them, we would be filled with hope. Nor has entered into our hearts all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Wow. And as you hear me quote so often, because it goes on just not to say, you know, well, it's tough luck, you don't get to see Him. No, the Spirit's been given to us to reveal them. Not just reveal them, it says in there, He searches the depths of God's heart just in case there's something down in His heart, especially for you today. He searches to bring it up and to reveal it to you, to show it to you and to show it to me. Wow. Wow. Wow, the God of all creation wants to show you gifts he has. Gifts. Gifts means they're free. Gifts means they're free. You like bargains, don't you, ladies? There's no greater bargain than a free gift. Now, we hesitate because usually there's a catch to it. We got a postcard in the mail the other day, and my wife said, you suppose this is for real? I said, no, I didn't read it yet. He says, you have won a free vacation. Yeah. <laughs> you've been pur- purposely chosen, just you, for this. For- All you've got to do is call this, you know, not a sales call. Oh, yeah. I've been there before. I've sat through the, you know, and, and such were some of you. Why? Because in this world, there's nothing free. When they give you something free, there's a string attached somewhere, but not with God. Numbers 23, 19 says, God's not a man that he should lie. Matthew chapter 7, God said, Jesus says about his father, because he knew his father, ask and you'll receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door shall be opened for you. For what father among you, if your child asks you for a fish, would you give him a, uh, give him a serpent? Or if he asks you for a loaf of bread, would you give him a stone? In other words, you as good, as even as evil as we might be, as we do our best, but we're not going to fool our kids. We might say, no, but we're not going to fool them. How much more does your father in heaven give what's good to those who ask him? So God doesn't play games with us. God doesn't have strings attached. That's manipulation. And manipulation is not truth. And God is truth. So He doesn't, first of all, He doesn't have to manipulate, and He won't manipulate. Because it's a form of lying. And we know who the liar is, because Jesus tells us who the liar is, and who the father of lies are. So God doesn't manipulate us. He doesn't play games with us and trick us. So if he has a gift for us, it's free. No strings attached. Then why don't we open it? Why don't we go for it? Why don't we come expecting it? If you knew the gift of God that he has for you here, woman, if you just knew it, you would ask of me and I would give you living that would become in you a well or a source of water rising up unto eternal life. Living water. 
Water is the thing that refreshes. I mean, you know, we get thirsty, we go get a Diet Coke or whatever, you know, but they don't really quench your thirst. They just whet your appetite for more of it. Tastes good, but that's why you want more of it. But water, pure water, satisfies the thirst, the most basic need that our human body has. And what Jesus is saying here, you came to have your physical need satisfies. But God here has a gift for you that will satisfy a deeper need, that will satisfy the deepest longing that your soul has. A longing that was built into you by your Creator. A longing that, see, we were made to need God. We were not made to operate on our own. That's what happened in the garden. They were enjoying this relationship with their Creator. It was completely satisfying. And then Satan comes in to try to break this up. And basically what he tells them is they don't need God. They could do this on their own. And of course, none of us can do it on our own. And we've been recovering from that ever since. We still, even as Christians, there's something in our flesh that I want to add something to this. I want to try harder. I want to do a little better. I want to do, I want to, I want to, I got to, I got to, this isn't enough somehow. This is, this is too good to be true. In the world's eyes it is, but not in the kingdom of God. Because that's how good God is. Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Get a taste of how good he is. How much he loves you. The gift that he has for you every day to make you whole, to satisfy the inner longings, the inner needs. So often in life, we're just, we, we get into situations that, that look overwhelming to us. My goodness, you start watching the news too much nowadays. It just gets overwhelming. You know, it's fine to find out what happened and then look, turn to something else. But, you know, don't keep watching it over and over and over again. They play the same videos over and over and over again. You know, little boys, teddy bear from a crash and all this stuff that stirs up emotion. Of course, these are terrible things that happen. Of course, we're living in difficult times. But you get just swallowed up by it. But even if you're not doing that, you can, these are, can be scary times to live in. And then I remember who lives on the inside of me. Then I realize who I belong to. Then I remember the covenant that I'm in with this God by which He's given everything He has to me. Romans 8.32 says, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also together with His Son freely give us all things? In other words, whatever God has, He's holding nothing back. It's not on His end. So why should I worry? Why should I be afraid? Paul, a few verses before, says, you know, that, that, you know, if God's for us, he goes through what God has done for us. And he says, if God's for us that way, who can be against us? I mean, who, who, I don't care who thinks they're your enemy. What can they do? Nothing. If God's for us that much. The gift, if you knew the gift, if you knew the gift... I mean, if you knew it. Oh, yeah, I know. No, no, if you knew it. Because when you know it, you don't sit there. When you know it, you can't be still. And that's what we're going to see. What we're going to see at the end of this story, we may not get there today the way we're going, is when she had the full revelation of who he was, she couldn't sit still. When she had the full revelation of who he was, she left her water pad and ran into the village. 
She started evangelizing and she didn't go to an evangelist course. She didn't hear, the, she didn't hear Jesus say, now you've got to go evangelize. See, that's been the problem with evangelism. It's something we're supposed to do. It's something we have to do. It's something we're obligated to do. It's something we feel guilty if we don't do. It's something we're not doing enough. So we're doing it for the wrong motive or the wrong way and we communicate why we're doing it. But almost everybody that I can think of, everybody I can think of, that had an encounter, a revelation of who God is, a revelation of who Christ is, couldn't sit still. They had to do something. There were even some people Jesus did things for. He says, don't go tell anybody. And they still went and told people. Why? Because when you've seen the gift that He has for you, I don't mean, oh, I know it. No, no. When you've seen it, not with these eyes, not with this mind, but when it's become a revelation in here of who God is and the gift He's given to you in Jesus, the gift He's given to this church in Christ, the gift He's given to His body in Christ, when we really see who that gift is, it changes us. And that's the process He's taking her through here. So let's move on. Verse 11, the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where are you going to get that? Where are you going to, what are you going to do to get that living water? Are you greater than the father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. Never thirst. But the water I shall give him shall become in him the source or a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. And the word says, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. She has no idea what she's asking for because she hasn't seen the gift yet. She sees him. She understands water. She's got a, she understands the concept of thirst and she understands the promise that I'm never going to be thirsty again, but she still doesn't know what he's talking about because she's still thinking undoubtedly about the quenching of the palate in her mouth satisfying her physical needs. And all she knows is, this sounds good. He's offering something better to me. He's offering a hope, something better to me than my life back in this village has ever offered. He, she's offering something new to me, and all she has is enough sense to say, I want it, I don't know what it is, I want it. And when we came to Christ, we did the same thing. None of you knew. I know I didn't. I had no idea what I was doing when I asked Christ to come into my life. The very least I knew is if this was real, I didn't have to go to hell. And I went to heaven. And that, if that's it, that was good enough for me. But I didn't even know what that meant. Because I'm not sure back then I even believed in hell. I was pretty cocky intellectual. Or thought I was. So I'm not sure whether I believed in hell or not. It was long enough ago, I can't remember. My point is, I didn't know anything. I thought I knew a lot, but I didn't know. And I found the older I get, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. I remember older people used to tell me that when I was young, and I come, yeah, right. Well, that was right. It's true. And it's not just because I forget it. <laughs> and that's what happens. We said yes and didn't know what we were saying yes to. We said yes without understanding the fullness of this gift and most of us are sitting here this morning and still really don't understand the fullness 
of the gift that God has for us in Christ. But notice, his giving this gift to her did not depend on her understanding. Aren't you glad? She didn't have to intellectually understand or even see all of it. All he did was when she said yes, that's the only permission he needed. And I've shared with you in my testimony, that's all. I mean, I was still arguing with whether he existed or not. And by his grace, he showed me what the issue was that night. He said, the problem you have is you're afraid that if you step over this line and you ask me to come into your life, you're afraid you're going to find out I'm not real. And I realized that was the problem. And he said, you're better off finding out that I'm not real than living in the torment that you're in right now of uncertainty. That was his grace. I didn't know that. I didn't know that's where I was. But the moment I saw that, I said, yes, that's right. I, and this is exactly what I said. You've heard me tell this testimony. Jesus, I don't know whether you're real or not. But if you are, I'm asking you to come into my life. And years later, the Lord showed me, he says, you opened the door a crack. I mean, all you, because you wanted to be able to close it quickly if it didn't work. He says, you opened the door a crack, but what did I do? He says, I didn't wait till you opened it wide. You gave me the slightest opening, and I know he did. He poured inside of me. I knew something happened inside of me. I started jumping around my living room at one in the morning saying, he's real, he's real, he's real, he's real. I knew something happened. I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand anything, and that freaked my brain out. I like to understand everything. Without my understanding what was happening, I just said yes, and that's what this woman did. She just says, I don't know what it is, but it sounds good to me. Give me some of that water. See, he met her where she was. He meets us where, and you know, he still meets us where we are. We're still his children. I've been walking with him for 35 years, and the, the longer I walk with him, the more I realize his goal for me is to become more and more childlike, not more and more grown up as a Christian. More mature, yes, but more mature means more like him. Jesus said, in order into the kingdom of God, you've got to become childlike, like a child. All right, let's go on. Verse 16. And we've talked about this before. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, well, I don't have a husband. Notice she didn't tell him everything. And he said, that's right. You've said, well, you have no husband because you've had five. And the one that you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, you're living in sin. In that you've spoken truly. And we've talked about that. He was, what he was showing her is that he was holding a standard up to her and showing her that, see, that, that, that she, was, she had failure in her life. He was highlighting her failure. Well, that's a strange way to draw her close. But she had to face who she was on her own. And we have to face who we are on our own before we realize we need His grace. See, the Pharisees thought that they were, they thought that they were living up to God's standard. In fact, they were living up to so much they could judge everybody else, and they judged everybody else by them. But it's interesting, Jesus said, He was talking about healing people that, that, were, that were sinners, and they said, well, do we need to be healed? And He said, no, because you think you're well. In other words, because you think you're all right, you don't need a Savior. And some of you knew you needed a Savior. You knew your life was falling apart. You knew you were a mess. I thought I was pretty good. 
And that stood in my way. Because why do I need God's grace if I'm doing pretty well? Well, yeah, I know I'm not perfect, so I need God's grace to fill in where I'm not perfect, but the rest of it I can handle on my own. And so God's grace has to show us exactly where we are on our own apart from God. In fact, that's what I believe humility is. Humility is seeing what you're like on your own. And therefore, you see how much you need God. And that's when we can find out how wonderful His grace is. When I hit the lowest part of my life, it fell apart. Things I never thought I could say, things I never thought I could do. It was the lowest part of my life. That's when I met His grace to a level I'd never known it before. Because up until that point, God filled in for what I couldn't do. And that's where many of us still are to some degree. We're we're trusting in God to fill in and make up for what we can't do. You can't do anything. Didn't Jesus say that in John 15? Apart from me, you can do nothing. nothing. And so His grace, it takes His grace to show us we're utterly dependent upon Him. And that's when we begin to realize how much we love Him. Remember the woman that was washing His feet with her tears and her hair? And he's in the presence of the, of, of the Pharisees. And they said, boy, if he really was a prophet, if he really were a prophet, he'd know who this woman was. And he never let her touch him. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said to him, you're judging her, but her sin is great. And of course, you know that. But because she says her sin's great, she loves me most. And the principle he teaches there is he who has sinned the most loves the most because he knows they needs his grace the most. Now, don't go out there and sin more so you can get more grace until you've read Romans chapter 6 first. And you don't have to. You just have to have your eyes opened to see the deeper inner thoughts. See, it may not be what you're doing on the outside, but begin to look. Read, read the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, read it slowly sometimes. That's what God's having me do, so I'll probably preach it soon. Read the Sermon on the Mount and then compare yourself with it. I mean, not what you're doing outwardly, because it talks about inner attitudes, not the outer actions. It deals with inner attitudes. How do you, what do you do with your enemies? What do you do with people that despitefully use you? What do you do with them? That's the standard that God goes by, because that's what He's done with us, because we all were His enemy at some point. I lost where I was. Let's go find out where I was. <laughs> We're just going to follow the Holy Ghost today. All right. Oh, yeah, he's talking to her about her husbands. And he's not doing this to be cruel. He's doing this so she realizes he's, all of this is an effort to raise her eyes up to see the gift that God has for her. And her, look at her response because now she's beginning to see a little more. Look at verse... 19, and the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So now no longer to her is he just a Jewish male that's asking for water and is talking about some strange kind of water he has to give her. Now because he's demonstrated a gift of the Spirit, now she begins to realize, wait a minute, you're not just some ordinary Jewish male. I perceive you're a prophet. And now she starts talking about worship. She says, basically, she's asking here, if you're a prophet, then I've got a question I need to have answered from you. You know things I don't know. Where's the right place to worship? 
We Samaritans worship here on this mountain. You Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer to her is, the day is coming and now is when it's not, on, it's not where you worship, but it's true worship that God's looking for. And he says this, he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we Jews worship what we know. What was that? What he's saying there is you Samaritans have no covenant relationship with God. There's been no revelation of God given to you, so you can't really worship him because you don't know who he is. Today, all over the world and through the history of man, man's worshiped all kinds of things because he doesn't know who God is. So he builds other gods into his life, makes statues of them. We've just finished talking about Nebuchadnezzar building this 90-foot statue of himself and having them worship because man wants to worship something greater than him. And if he can't, doesn't know someone greater than he, he'll make something greater than he. Because since he made it, it's not greater than he is. And so, so that's what he's talking about here. He says, you Samaritans, you've worshipped, but you don't really know Jehovah because you don't have a covenant with him. We Jews, we've had a revelation of him through the law of Moses. We've had a revelation of him through the prophets. We have a revelation. So we've been able to worship him up to the point that we can for the revelation that we have of him. But there's coming a time when there's going to be a new level of worship that's a free and open worship because it's going to be a worship in the Spirit because the Holy Spirit's going to come and He can reveal to us who God really is and so now we can worship Him for who He really is. And we talked about that. Worship Him in Spirit and then in truth. Truth means facing the reality of who He really is, not making up who I want Him to be. Now having said this, Let's look at verse 25. Her eyes are getting opened a little more. And she said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Look at verse 26. And he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Could you just, some, just imagine what that impact must have been like? For generations they've heard Messiah's coming. <clears throat> Even the Samaritans knew that because she knew this. The Jews have been looking for a Messiah. Their hope was that the Roman, the Roman dominance would be broken because the Messiah would come back and he would deliver them from their enemies. And the Samaritans would get the benefit of this. She's come to this well on a regular average day <clears throat> looking for some water to drink. And this Jewish teacher starts talking to her and she begins to hear him talk about things in her own life that only a man of God would know and she realizes that this man must be a prophet and then through this discussion of worship, isn't that interesting, now she begins to lift her eyes up to see him more clearly. See, that's what worship does. Worship sets your heart on God. It's a seeking of your heart to Him and allowing Him to reveal Himself to you. And the more He reveals Himself to you, the more He changes you. And now she's beginning to get a glimpse. Her, 
her hope, her expectation, her eyesight, her vision of what she's looking for has increased from just, I need water to drink today, to a Messiah is out there somewhere. There's a Messiah coming. And she reports this to him, and he, she hears these words. I who am talking to you am he. Wow. Imagine what the impact that must have been on her. Well, you ought to because it had the same impact on you. Because there came a point in your search and your journey where Jesus revealed to you he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Somewhere he revealed it to you that he's the Messiah, the Christ. Look what she does. Isn't it interesting what she doesn't do? She doesn't fall down and worship him. That's what they've just been talking about. But she sees who he is. And we're going to see in a few minutes and maybe next week. She doesn't have a full understanding yet, and you and I don't either. But what she sees, she doesn't fall down to worship. What does she do? Verse 27. At this point, the disciples come back. Remember, they were out going to find McDonald's and Burger King because they were all thinking about food. At this point, the disciples come back and they marveled because he's talking to a woman. Yet no one says, why are you seeking or why are you talking with her? They knew better. Verse 28. The woman, she doesn't fall down and worship him. She leaves her water pot. Remember why she came? Her whole focus of coming up there was to fill this water pot. Remember what this water pot was? This water pot was her supply of what she needed to drink for the next day or several days or whatever. We don't know. It was crucial. It was necessary. It was the essential things of life. But now she's had a glimpse of Jesus and who He is. She forgets about her natural needs. She forgets about the weather. She forgets about what clothes she's going to wear tomorrow. She forgets about whether she has a job or not. She forgets about whether her family likes her or not. She forgets about whether she feels healthy or not. She forgets about whether people smile at her or not. She forgets about everything that was important to her when she came up there. And she leaves it there. And she runs back into her city. She doesn't fall down on her knees and say, wow, you're the Messiah. She has to do something. So I was praying about this this morning. I'm going back over people in the Bible that had an encounter with him. Moses on the mountain comes off the mountain and people can't get near him because the glory of God is shining off his face. Paul on the road to Jerusalem to destroy the church in Damascus. In one moment's time, his entire eternal destiny is changed and the destiny of millions of people are changed in one moment's time by what? He has an encounter with the risen Christ that appears to him. And he doesn't know who he is. He just says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus reveals himself. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. 
And Paul's first words out of his mouth was, what must I do? The revelation of who Christ was to him personally changed his whole motive of life and he couldn't just stay on his knees. He had to go into the city for three days and go through a process. But as soon as that, he went out and he started causing trouble in the church. In fact, they had to send him eventually back home for a while. Some of you were like that when you were first saved. The point is this. Jesus didn't have to tell him to do anything. Jesus didn't have to tell the woman to do anything. An encounter with him, a revelation of who this gift was that was given by God to her, of who Christ was to Paul. The disciples would walk with him for three and a half years, done miracles, seen miracles done by him. After he's raised from the dead, they're still not so sure. That always gives me hope. I mean, they know intellectually who he is, but the revelation of the gift that he was, the revelation of who he really is and what that really means hadn't yet hit them. We know because when he goes to the Mount of Ascension, only a group of them are there. And the rest of them scatter and go back home. But until that time, he said, wait in Jerusalem. And while they wait in Jerusalem until they'd receive power from on high, which was their encounter with the Spirit of God inside of them. And in Acts chapter 2, it starts out by saying, and they were all together and they were with one accord and the place where they were was filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak with other tongues. And what had happened? They didn't keep that to themselves. They spilled out into the streets. So much so that it began to cause a commotion. Then people began to gather around. A crowd began to gather around. Fine, what does this mean? They didn't sit in the upper room and say, now what do we think we need to do next? You know what? I think we need to start an evangelistic crusade. They couldn't help it. They couldn't help it. They spilled out into the streets. People that Jesus met during his earthly ministry. They couldn't help but keep, they couldn't keep quiet. They had to go tell somebody. Later on, Peter and John raise a man from a, Jesus through them raises a man who could never walk but the gate beautiful. They've all been court before the Pharisees and they, they're saying, you know, by what authority you've done this? And they said, it's not by our authority, it's not by our piety, it's by the name of Jesus. Jesus did this through us. So they command him to not preach anymore in his name. And Peter's answer is, I don't know whether, listen, believe, you know whether you listen to us or not doesn't matter. Whether we obey you or not doesn't matter. All we know is we can't help but to do and say what we've... We can't help but to speak what we've seen. We can't help it. Whether it's right in your eyes or God, it doesn't matter. We can't keep quiet because something's happened to us. Something's happened to us. And there are other examples. And the question that kept going off in me is what is it we haven't seen? What is it we haven't experienced so that we can sit in our blue chairs? And I'm talking to me as much as you. So that we can be comfortable every day walking past, working next to, driving, living near people that are lost and going to hell. 
people that, that need to hear what we know, but maybe it is we don't know as much as we think we know. Maybe we know a lot of scriptures. Maybe we know a lot of principles. Maybe we know some good teachings. And maybe we've applied them in our life. But what changed them that hasn't changed us to the point that we can't sit still? Why do we have to come up with programs to evangelize? What, what motivated them was the experience and revelation that they had of Christ. Let's look quickly at what happened here. She left everything that mattered to her. I just can't emphasize this enough. This is water she left. The thing that contains the water that she left. Why did she leave it? Because Jesus said, look, there's more important things than water. No, suddenly that water was not important to her. Suddenly, the things of life, of this natural life, were not as important to her as what had just happened to her. And she didn't even understand it. When was the last time you were so excited about Jesus you forgot to eat? When was the last time you were, you were so full of talking to people about Jesus because you were so full of Him that you came to the end and you know what? I never ate today. I didn't have any water to drink today. Oh my goodness. Because I was so caught up in doing the Master's work. I was so caught up in, in sharing what I've experienced. Not because I had to. I was so caught up and I didn't think about eating. That's what she's doing here. Because even more important eating was drinking water in that hot... See, it's suddenly the day didn't come to get air-conditioned. It was still just as hot. She just didn't notice it. So what does she do? She runs back to the village. Verse 29. And she said, Come see a man. Well, she had a reputation. That wasn't a strange thing for her to talk about men. But in this story we're going to see, we have to look at it quickly, they recognize something different about her. Because if the day before she said, Look, Come see a man. They say, yeah, right. We know you know men. She had to have a reputation. But there was something about her that was different. Something that was coming out of her. Something animating her. Something that she had experienced that caught their attention enough. Because she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's not too attractive either. I want somebody to you, you know, I got somebody coming to me. They know everything you've ever done. Uh, I'm not so sure I want to go see that person. So not only was it her reputation, but she was inviting them to go see a man that could reveal their innermost secrets. So there was something about it, what had happened to her, that, that touched them and their thirst inside of them. Because what do they do? They follow her. And they went out of the city and they came to him. Now we have this little interlude. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat which you don't know of. Well, that really threw them. Because the disciples said to one another, somebody brought him something to eat? And Jesus says to him, my food, what satisfies me, what sustains me, isn't that cheeseburger you brought me? What sustains me is to do the work 
of, my, of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's what sustains me. That's what I live on. That's why I live. Too many of us live to eat. He lived to do his Father's will. And that satisfied him, nourished him, and strengthened him at a level that the cheeseburger and the french fries couldn't do. All right, move on quickly. And look at verse 35. He says, Don't say there's still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. What's going on there? They're talking about food, and I don't know whether it's harvest time or not, but Jesus said, you know, don't tell me it's four months for the harvest. Look up. And what did he look up when they saw? They saw a field full of men in robes coming out. The harvest he's talking about is the men coming out of the city in response to the one woman that went in there and said, I met a man, yeah, right, who told me everything I've ever done, and there's something about her that's drawing these men out. And now Jesus is saying, look, here comes the harvest. It's ripe for the harvest. They still didn't get it. Verse 36. And he who reaps receives wages, and he who gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may may rejoice together. For in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you've not labored. Others have labored and have entered into their labors. Now, here's what happens. And many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So the progress here is she runs back, she creates this excitement. They don't understand what they're doing, but they're just drawn by that excitement. So they follow her up there, and they've said, we believed enough to come to you because of the words she said. Okay. They really don't know who he is yet either. was I? Oh yeah. Because of the word which the woman testified, he told me, verse 40, 40. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there with them for two days. And now many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So here's the progression. On this day, starts out with a thirsty woman coming to get her natural needs met, has no idea what God has in store for her. She comes to the well she goes to every day. There's a man sitting there, a Jew sitting there, and she naturally shies away from him. But he speaks to her. He crosses the line. He initiates it to her. And all she does is respond and say, what this is, I don't know what it is, but I want it. And he said, if you knew the gift that this was, you don't understand what this gift is, but God has a gift for you today that's beyond your wildest imagination. She says, I don't know what it is, but I want it. And he met her there. Then he begins to address areas of her life and she begins to realize, look, you're not just a Jewish teacher. You must be a prophet because you know things only God could show you. Goes into this discussion about worship and the result of which Jesus reveals to her 
he's the Messiah. She's so excited that she leaves her water pot, rushes down to the city, and her excitement draws people, men, up to meet him. They don't understand what's going on, but they believe enough to invite him to come down and talk to them. So their initial belief is because they're excited about her testimony. And they want what she's tasting. But as they continue in it, they begin to develop their own relationship with him. And now the revelation of who he is to them has come directly from him to them. It's not through that woman anymore. And that's the journey most of us have taken. Somebody shared Christ with you, whether it was on TV, whether it was here, wherever it was. And something about that touched you enough that you stepped out and maybe did what I did, said, I don't know if you're real, whatever it is. You invited him in, whatever that little step was. That's all he was looking for. Just look for just permission that you would give him to come into your life. And he's been in the process, however long that is, of revealing to you who he really is. Yes, I know he's a Messiah. Yeah, but do you really know what that means? Do I really see the gift that he is to me? And the more I do, the more he reveals to me, the more it begins to change me. And that revelation, when it begins to change us, we can't sit still. We have to do something. We have to do something. Not because we're told we have to. We can't help it. And the question we've got to ask ourselves Do I have so much of a revelation of him that I can't sit still and have to tell people about him? Or do I have to make myself open my mouth and do something? Then maybe I don't have the revelation of him that I need. Because, you know, when we've been walking with him long enough, we get content with how much of him we know. And I believe the Holy Spirit's challenging us. I know he is me. Challenging me. Not to get out there and do what we're supposed to do. That's the result of it, but challenging me to say, do you really know me? Has your relationship with me impacted you so much that you can't be still? You have to go tell people. Maybe it was for you at one time and it's gotten stale because of some issue that's happened or you've just gotten settled into the way things have always been. The answer is to go back and do what Jesus tells the church at Ephesus to do, fall in love with him all over again. Go back and remember what he's done for you. Ask God to begin to open your eyes to reveal to you who he really is, the gift that Jesus is to you every moment of every day. Not just somebody you talk to in the morning, not just somebody you you, you come in and hear about on Sunday, but who is he really in your life in the nighttime? Who is he really in your life in those dark hours? Who is he really in your life? Who is this gift to you, this gift? Did you ever get a gift you were so excited about you had to go tell somebody? Somebody ever give you a car, a new car, or the keys? Whoa! Or something nice? I mean, it may not have that happened. But somebody give you something really nice, and you just have to go show people, look what I got for Christmas. Look what they gave me for my birthday. Look what they did for this. For my wife's birthday, I know people in the church were very generous, but my, our son, our oldest son, put together a video of friends of hers, from ministry friends and, and our kids. Total surprise to her. I didn't ask him to do it. And he presented it to her on her birthday. Even yesterday with our grandkids over, she's pulling it out to show it to him. She's got to tell somebody. She goes, you know, your dad did this for me. Look what your dad did. It impacted her. It means something to her. So she has to tell somebody about it. And the question is not why am I not witnessing more? What it is that, how do I see Jesus 
that makes me feel comfortable sitting still? Why, is, why am I not moved the way these people were, the way this woman was? Well, you and I know infinitely more than she does. It's not how much we know. It's how much, it's how much of him we know. It's how real he is to us. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from my doctrine. That's important. Not apart from your, your, your knowledge of the scriptures. That's important. But apart from me, the relationship with me, your knowledge of me. And I believe the Holy Spirit is asking us to begin to be willing to look. Well, where am I? What do I know? Because only then we'll begin to realize we're thirstier than we realize. We're hungrier than we realize. Lord, stir in us a hunger. Stir in us a thirst that, that only you can satisfy, that we drink from every day, every moment of every day. We don't get so busy in the day we forget about you, but we bring you through our whole day, walking through the day, not just with you, but in you and you and us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that because you're our Father and you love us, you meet us where we are. We have here a wonderful story from your word of Jesus meeting this woman every step along the way with where she was and at each step revealing who you are. And we come faced with the reality today that so much of what we do for you in terms of sharing Christ, we do out of a sense of guilt or obligation. And Lord, we see here a woman We've seen the Apostle Paul. We've seen others. Not sharing out of obligation, but out of excitement and joy because of their revelation of who he is. Refresh us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Fill us again with the spirit of the living God that we cannot be still, but we overflow with not just words, but love and joy and peace that we become contagious as this woman became to her entire city. Father, much hinges upon this. And this can't be done by our power. This can't be done by our wisdom. But this can only be done by the Holy Spirit. As we sang earlier for his presence, may that be the song of our heart this week, to fill us again and again and again to overflowing with your presence, not just for our sake, but so that we would overflow and so, Father, I ask you as I pray so often for this congregation as well as for my life and for my family that you would strengthen us by your spirit in our inner man, that Christ may live his life in us and through us by faith, being rooted and grounded in love, that we would come to know together the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding that we may be filled with all of his fullness. Our hope is that we're praying to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.